Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one guest today, a long interview with the Haitian-born political scientist Robert Fatten, whose homeland has been very much in the news lately because of the assassination of its president, Jovenel Moïse, on July 7th under very murky circumstances. What's behind the assassination and how did the country get to this sorry pass? Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. It has been punished for over two centuries by the imperial powers, notably its former colonizer, France, and its almighty neighbor, the U.S., ever since it mounted a successful slave rebellion in 1804. France made a lot of money from its colony and was annoyed to see the stream of riches shut off, and the U.S., led at the time by the owner of 200 human beings, Thomas Jefferson, feared the revolutionary example might spread to our own enslaved population. Haiti, long on the edge of chaos, got a little closer to falling completely into it with the assassination two weeks ago of its president, Jovenel Moïse. Moïse, a businessman of some sort, was chosen for the role by his predecessor, the singer-turned-politician known by his stage name as Sweet Mickey. We'll hear a bit of his music later in the show. Martelly's rule was violent and corrupt, and he owed his office in no small part to the intervention after the disastrous 2010 earthquake by then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and her husband Bill, whose eponymous foundation had a big role in the botched reconstruction after the disaster. More on that at the end of the show. To examine the politics behind the assassination and the long history leading up to it, here's Robert Fatton. Fatten, the Julia Cooper Professor of Government and Foreign Affairs at the University of Virginia, has been on this show several times, first in 2004 and most recently 2016, meaning that he's long overdue for a return appearance. Fatten is the author of several books, including Haiti's Predatory Republic and The Guise of Exceptionalism, Unmasking the National Narratives of Haiti in the U.S., published a few months ago by Rutgers University Press. In the earlier book, Fatten argued that post-revolutionary Haiti never developed a productive economy, its elite has enriched itself by stealing resources through political connections. In the most recent one, he explores some strange affinities between the very rich U.S. and the very poor Haiti, notably a sense of a special status conferred by their revolutionary origins. Of course, the U.S. has long had the means to act on its sense of mission, often to the detriment of the outside world. For Haiti, exceptionalism has long been a psychological compensation for extreme material deprivation. Okay, here's Robert Fatton. Do you have a theory of the assassination, who's behind it, what they attempted to accomplish? No one, I think, really has offered a good theory. I mean, Jovenel Moïse had enemies. He was not a popular president. But I don't see any real force, even those who opposed him, who would have killed him. I'm saying that because assassination of presidents in Haiti are rather rare in spite of the violence of the politics and in spite of the number of dictators that we've had over the years. But the last assassination is 1915, when a fellow by the name of Guillaume Sam was not assassinated in the same way. He was uh, attacked by a crowd of Haitians who uh, really disliked him because he had invited the United States and that clearly was not to the liking of those Haitian uh, people. So he was killed by uh, that mob. And then obviously the United States entered uh, Haiti and occupied the country from 1915 to 1934. But the killing of Moïse is puzzling. He had made a few enemies in the private uh, sector. But on the other hand, it is the private sector to a large degree which put him there as president. I don't think the international community was against him because, in fact, the United States was supporting him and supported this idea that uh, his term could be prolonged by a year. He had promised elections. So there, I don't think there was a problem. It may well be that uh, the whole thing was a settlement between different forces and the accounts of the assassination are really bewildering. No one can understand how in the heck a bunch of mercenaries could penetrate the house of the president without even finding any type of resistance. There was no shooting 
between the so-called mercenaries and the Haitian security forces. There are three perimeters before you get to the house of the president. One is a police station at the entrance of the main road that leads to a small road where you get to the president. But all of those intersections, you have some security. And then you have obviously the private security, the security detail of the president, which is supposed to be there. The chief of police has said that there was supposed to be 24 security people in the residence itself, guarding the residence. But he doesn't want to answer the question, the obvious question, were they there? He doesn't want to answer that. And clearly there was no shooting against those security people because no one has been injured or killed except the president and his wife. And then there is the other bizarre fact that the room of the president is supposedly some kind of a mini bunker. You close the door and you're not going to get in there because the door is a special door. I assume that he must have known the person who was coming to his to his room, to his bedroom. Because otherwise, why would he open that door? Especially that he was on the phone saying that my life is in danger, please, and come save me to his security forces. There was a report last night about that, a very detailed uh, report. So he's hearing people shooting in the air because there was no other struggle between security forces and the so-called mercenaries. So how do you get there? And he's calling and he can't close the door. It's a very, very strange thing. But the powers behind the assassinations, I I don't quite see what they would have had to gain from it. They've accused a weird Dr. Sanon. Oh, that's a very bizarre story. Nobody who knows. Yeah, I don't buy that story. I don't think that guy has you know, he may have been duped into thinking that he was going to be the next president of Haiti because that guy is an evangelical and you have plenty of those guys in Haiti who think that they have a mission and that God has anointed them to become president. And that guy said that, you know, in several YouTubes, he said, I'm the savior of the country, God. (laughs) So, and they even sent a letter to the State Department saying, uh, this is the guy, uh, is the leader, is going to save. It's mind-boggling. Now, what seems clear, at least from my perspective, is that some people in the security apparatus were part of that whole plot. There is no way that uh, mercenaries can get into the house of the president without a fight. So therefore, someone must have given orders, vacate the premises, or you get in. And the other thing, if if the mercenaries are so well-trained, they are all essentially Colombian uh, military people who have been trained in guerrilla warfare, drug uh, fight, etc. You go and kill a president and you don't have an exit strategy. You stay in the streets of Pétionville. It makes no sense that that could be the case. And then they, they, they go to the Taiwanese embassy, 11 of them, and they stay there and they don't fight. And the people who have been killed, the three Colombians who have been killed, apparently, were the three key Colombians in terms of uh, the creation of that mercenary group. So there are strange coincidences that make me very suspicious of the security forces. A Haitian friend of mine speculated that it's just uh, kind of a mafia hit, that uh, he is perhaps stepping on too much of the loot and uh, they have wanted to settle scores with him. I don't know about that. I mean, in the last few months, because there has been so much opposition to Jovenel Moïse, he started to talk like a left-wing populist accusing the private sector of monopolizing the resources of the country. All of that is true. But it's it's a very convenient thing to say when you are really under siege and you're trying to mobilize popular support. I don't think many Haitians bought that because the fellow was engaged in all kinds of corruption. Now, there might have been a deal that was so big and that he was involved in it and something of this sort might have happened. But frankly, the typical way to force a president now in Haiti is to just tell him, your time is up, there is a plane waiting for you, and bye-bye. This has been the case of Aristide, 
And this, to a large degree, was the case of Martelly, the previous president who actually put Jovenel Moïse in office because the elections that uh, led to the uh, Jovenel Moïse presidency were completely contested and really uh, fraudulent. And uh, Moïse was the protégé of Martelly. So, you know, any theory at the moment seems plausible because the whole thing is so crazy, so bewildering that it's impossible to understand rationally. And then you have, you know, the, the, the president's wife apparently has said that she was with the president in the bedroom and that they were, they, they were hiding under the bed, but the president is, was too tall on his feet, you know. <laughs> I mean, you hear things, and this is from a report, supposedly a leak, FBI, talk with the first lady. But then there is a story today, say, because she had said also that the president had been tortured. Now, apparently from the account in the Miami Herald uh, this morning, uh, when she was found, she said that the president had died immediately and that he didn't suffer, which is a very strange thing to say, because when you look at the body of the president, some really gruesome pictures have appeared, and the autopsy, his right eye was gouged. She had 12 shots in the body, broken wrist, broken leg. That, to me, is not the kind of immediate death. I mean, he must have suffered. So I don't know which account is plausible. I don't see that any of them so far make significant sense. And I think the investigation is ongoing. We'll see if the the truth, if it ever comes out, uh, what it will reveal. But at the moment, the rumors and the speculation about who could have been behind is, uh, you know, they are multiple. And some of them, frankly, do not make much sense, but the whole thing doesn't make much sense. So any theory, as I've said, is plausible. I'm speaking with the political scientist, Robert Fatton. Now, this assassination leaves the country essentially without a government now, doesn't it? Oh, it's a complicated business because Jovenel Moïse first was no longer considered by the vast majority of Haitians as a legitimate president because he had prolonged his term by a year. He should have stepped uh, down in February of 2021 of this year. But he said, yes, I was elected in 2016, but I, didn't, I was not installed as president until 2017. So therefore, my term of five years ends on February 22nd. 2022. That was rejected. Uh, So he was perceived as an illegitimate president, not only because of that, but also because there were all kinds of allegations of real corruption on his part. But in any case, he was the de facto, as it were, president of the republic. He had been ruling by decree for more than a year. And I mean, the week before he was assassinated, he nominated a new prime minister by the name of Ariel Henry. And Ariel Henry was supposed to have replaced the current prime minister, uh, Claude Joseph. Now, when the assassination occurred, Joseph said, I am the prime minister and I'm staying in power till we resolve this issue until next elections. Initially, Joseph received the support of the foreign community. I mean, the UN uh, representative, who's an American, said that Joseph was, in fact, the incumbent uh, prime minister and that he should be the one running the show till elections. Uh, Now, Henri in Haiti claimed, no, I am, in fact, the prime minister because the president had nominated me. And actually, I had picked Claude Joseph, the prime minister, to become the foreign minister. So there was a week of confusion. And then over the weekend, the international community changes its mind and says, well, Ariel Henry is the prime minister and he should form a government. And a few minutes ago, I got a note saying that Ariel Henry was going to become the official prime minister and that Claude Joseph was going to step down. Now, clearly, you don't become prime minister in Haiti in this kind of exceptional situation without the backing of the international community. So for whatever reason, the core group they are called, United States, Canada, 
uh, France and a few Latino American countries, decided to drop the guy. And no one understand why. Now, Ariel Henry is probably a more legitimate figure in Haitian politics. But still, most people, even in the opposition, have a hard time recognizing a prime minister nominated by the assassinated president. So we have confusion. And to add to that confusion, uh, a fellow by the name of uh, Joseph Lambert, who's a senator, declared that the remnants of the Senate, there are 10 senators who are still officially senators, but there is no, no functioning parliament because the parliament was dissolved by the president and there have been no elections. Nonetheless, eight of those 10 senators voted last week, Lambert, into the position of an interim provisional uh, president. Now, he was supposed to have been installed on Sunday. That didn't happen. And he was supposed to have formed a government with Ariel Henry as prime minister. So now we have maybe a struggle between Lambert and Henry. I don't know. This remains to be seen. And the other factor is clearly what has been called in society for a better, uh, in Asian society for a better word, civil society, which is a kind of large group of organizations, popular organizations representing workers, lawyers, peasants, you name it, and some opposition parties. And they are a force because that civil society had organized massive protests two years ago against Jovenel Moïse, calling for his resignation. But it's an amorphous kind of group. It reminds me a little bit of that kind of civil society in Egypt when they had their so-called spring. A lot of people, young people, mobilizing, using social media to organize protests, but ultimately not controlling really the levers of power. So what will happen to that group? I don't know. They've been calling for a government of national unity, uh, and it remains to be seen if that is going to happen. The situation is very confusing. Is the army involved in politics? Or do they have an opinion of all this? Well, well, the army has essentially disappeared. It was reestablished, but it's really a very small group of people. The main coercive force in Haiti at the moment is the police, which is itself quite disorganized and quite inefficient. This is another one of the puzzles, because it's not the most efficient police. And yet, they found the, the mercenaries 12 hours after the assassination, supposedly, you know, elite commandos. So that's another puzzle. Uh, but the police is a, is a key element in Haitian politics now, but it's divided. And you may have heard also about the increasing number of gangs, in particular in Port-au-Prince, uh, gangs that are literally taking over part of the of significant areas in Pokemon. Now, those gangs are connected to the police. One of the most famous gang members is a fellow by the name of Cherizier, but he's called Barbecue. And Barbecue used to be uh, a member of the police. Now he has transformed himself into some sort of Robin Hood, saying that he's going to be a revolutionary, etc., which is quite implausible because he is attacking both very wealthy people and very poor people. But there's a proliferation of gangs. Actually, there's an association of the gangs now, and you can watch them on social media. They are interviewed by the press, and many people alleged that, in fact, some of those gangs were financed by the government so they could manipulate the future elections and they could also target some of their enemies. Now, gangs in Haiti are not a new phenomenon, but now they are much, much more visible and they control much larger area than they used to. And most uh, political actors in Haiti have financed at one time or another those gangs. Now, the problem is that once you finance the gangs, once they get enough money and they are linked also to the drug trafficking business, they can acquire a certain degree of autonomy. So they become dangerous to the government itself, which is very weak. 
And actually, the gangs control an area in Port-au-Prince, which is not that far from Parliament and barely a mile from the presidential palace. So you're talking about a very weird geography of power. And when Parliament was actually in exercise, they couldn't go to Parliament without you know, massive security because they were fearful of the gangs. So you have a situation where the state itself is collapsing. It has been eviscerated by all kinds of uh, policies and by the machinations of the rulers in Haiti itself. What about um, the Haitian elite, the ruling class, uh, political side, economic side? Are they? Wh- wh- where do they stand in all this? That is the big question, because the financial elite, if you wish, is light-skinned to a large degree. In other words, people my color. And uh, they control uh, the banking, they control commerce. And there is also another wing that is what we call uh, in Haiti, uh, les Syriens Libanais the people coming from Syria and Lebanon. Now, they may not come from Syria or Lebanon, but if they come from the Middle East, that's the way we call them. And they've been very powerful in the commercial sector, the import uh, sector, because Haiti imports essentially everything that it consumes. So they control that traffic. But then you have, if you wish, a black bourgeoisie that has also connections to that financial world that uh, crystallized with the ascendancy of Duvalier. And they are now intermarrying. So you have a very complicated class of rulers that are differentiated in terms of their origins, in terms of their color, and in terms of which sector they control. There are some sectors which control the power sector, because everything has been essentially privatized. They control the oil flow, which is critical, because if you want to have electricity in Haiti, you need to have oil. And that is manipulated by some of these sectors. And it has created uh, tensions between the government and those elements. So you have a ruling class, a financial ruling class. Then you have the political ruling class, if you wish, people who are in the government who control whatever is left of the state. And those guys, to a large degree, are in positions in public office because this is the way you extract illicit wealth when you are aspiring to move up in the social uh, hierarchy. So you have those conflicts between those different sectors. And then you have an educated elite, if you wish, which uh, is critical of those sectors, but it's part of that upper echelon of Haitian society. So uh, it's a complicated ruling class with its own internal contradictions. But what I would argue is that they are all united against any fundamental change in the country. And that's why I doubt that that they are behind the assassination, because this creates more chaos and the possibility of a social explosion. And that, to them, is dangerous. But it doesn't sound like it's a very coherent ruling force. It is not a coherent ruling force, and it is rather weak when uh, you look at the international community. The international community, to a large degree, can dictate the terms of any arrangements in Haiti. And that was very clearly demonstrated when that uh, Prime Minister Claude Joseph, the first thing he did after the assassination is to call for American troops because the power is very weak. Uh, and there is a fear that that vacuum could in fact lead to an explosion. And the explosion would certainly not benefit those at the top because it may actually take also a color dimension that light skin are very easily targeted and could be the first to suffer any type of social explosion. They're a small group, and there has been that kind of uh, color discourse uh, recently that has been pushed uh, uh, fairly intensely. And even the president has, was starting to talk in those terms, talking about oligarchs, etc. And it's difficult, you know, <laughs> for Jovenel Moïse to talk about an oligarchy, because he's part of it. You know, when he came to power, he had some kind of fake 
banana industrial complex that was supposed to revolutionize the agricultural sector and export bananas. There was only one uh, verified export and then the whole thing started to collapse. But he got significant amount of land and money for that uh, particular industrial project. And if you look at his house, it's certainly not the house of an average Haitian, it's the house of an oligarch. So, it's, but you have those tensions and you can have uh, that kind of uh, populism appealing to color to mobilize people against particular sectors of, of Haitian society. That was the first part of an interview with the political scientist Robert Fatten. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of I Don't Care by Sweet Mickey, the stage name of Michel Martelly, who served as president of Haiti from 2011 to 2016. A musicologist quoted in the 1997 profile of Martelly by Elise Ackerman in Miami New Times described his style of music, compa, as lighthearted party music that is played when you have dictators in power. That style of music, which, as the journalist Trenton Daniel pointed out in a 2002 article in the journal Transition, arose alongside the rule of François Papadoc Duvalier, the dictator who refashioned the country in his own paranoid style, as Daniel put it. When he wasn't killing and torturing opponents, Duvalier, who was president from 1957 to 71, funded parties that, quote, provided free food, drink, and dancing to all comers. His secret police, the Tonton Macoute, forced bands to play at these parties, singing songs with pro-government lyrics. Protest music was banned, and its producers were killed, jailed, or exiled. Martelly was an enthusiastic supporter of the 1991 coup against Jean-Bertrand Aristide, whose progressive agenda alarmed elites. This song, I Don't Care, is a response to those who criticized him for supporting the coup. And now on to the second part of my interview with the Haitian-American political scientist Robert Fatten, who teaches at the University of Virginia. Okay, let's um, step back into history and talk a bit about your book. You make a very interesting, uh, almost a, a parallel between the U.S. and Haiti in that we have this sense of mission of exceptionalism founded on revolution and notions of liberty. Um, I think probably most people are familiar with the American version of that, but could you just lay out a, a bit of this foundational myth of Haiti and how it affects uh, the present? Well, Haitians obviously look at their revolution at 1804 as the most radical, the most democratic revolution that had been conducted at the time. It was radical because obviously it abolished slavery and the constitution itself talks about the abolition of slavery and the fact that Haitians were revolutionary people and they were sovereign. Now, when you put that in the context of the time, it was indeed a fundamental break with uh, white supremacy. So there is that vision of Haiti as a revolutionary force in the world, as the country that abolished slavery, established the dignity of blackness, as it were, and therefore that the uh, Western powers uh, would consider Haiti from its very inception as a paria nation a nation that had been that had to be contained, that had to be suppressed, etc. And there are good <laughs> indications that indeed that's exactly what the white powers intended. And one of the paradigmatic examples of that is the so-called French indemnity, whereby 
the French in the in 1825 demanded a huge amount of money so that the French would recognize Haiti as an independent nation. And now if you look at that amount in modern monetary realities, it's the equivalent of about $25 billion. So the argument goes. And that is true. I mean, there was a threat to Haiti on the part of the French that if they didn't pay, then uh, the French would take over again Haiti. And that has contributed to a series of financial deals on the part of Asian governments to pay that debt. They renegotiated the debt. It was lowered, but they accumulated other debts in order to repay the debt. Now, one of the things that Haitians don't like to talk about is the simple fact that the Haitian rulers at the time, they had, uh, as a result of the revolution, taken hold of the best lands in the country. They had huge holdings, and they had property that they had seized from the departing uh, colonialists. They were essentially reestablishing the plantation system. They attempted to, but they couldn't. That was one of the fundamental contradictions of the whole world economy at the time, that whether you're talking about Dessalines or earlier Toussaint or Pétion or Henri Christophe or Boyer, they all wanted to establish a so-called code rural, whereby they would, to a large degree, uh, reestablish forced labor. Not necessarily slavery, but forced labor, the plantation economy. And at that time, the plantation economy could be efficient only and only if you had essentially labor that was uh, virtually enslaved. Uh, so they attempted to do that, but the vast majority of Haitians who had just gained their emancipation were not going to put up with it. So they retreated into small plots of land. And that in turn, contributed to the uh, contradiction that you could not reestablish the plantation economy. You could not. So it never really was a functioning economy. Peasants, you know, it's, it's the whole idea, as we say in Haiti, of uh, Haitian marronage, whereby peasants, whether it was well, slaves under slavery and slaves in the post-slavery period, wanted to avoid the government wanted to avoid the state because the state and public authorities were exploitative. So you couldn't reestablish that kind of uh, forced labor that would be functional to the plantation economy. But the rulers in Haiti, uh, whether you're talking about Dessalines or Pétion or Henri, they had accumulated a significant amount of private wealth and private land holding. So when the French came and said, we are going to colonize you again, those rulers, the Haitian rulers in particular, Boyer and the members of the ruling class, feared that they would lose whatever they had. So they had a kind of opportunistic interest with the French in signing an agreement that would once and for all mean that they were big property owners. So that's a class interest on the part of the Haitian politicians. Uh, but th there is that nationalistic fervor in Haiti that tends to erase that part and just the French came and they exploited the Haitians. That's true. But the Haitian rulers were complicit in that kind of uh, deal. And this kind of opportunistic convergence of interest to me is fundamental to understand the history of Haiti and to understand the present, that the ruling class has interests that are similar to some extent to those of the imperial powers. Haiti had very little room to maneuver and was completely dependent and hemmed in by those imperial powers. So absolutely, was, from the point of view of the ruling class, it makes sense to cut a deal. Exactly. And this is where, you know, when you talk about exceptionalism, Haitians think that they have very powerful uh, exceptionalism in the idea of the revolution. On the other hand, Haiti has uh, no power. So therefore, the exceptionalism cannot be taken so seriously. Whereas the United States, whatever they say, it's backed by <laughs> significant amount of power. It's exceptionalism, but with a difference because you can impose it 
on others. Haitians have no capacity to do so. And even Dessalines, when he first became the emperor of Haiti at independence time, he sent letters to Jefferson saying, we are not interested in fomenting revolutions in the Caribbean. We want good relations with the United States. Now, Jefferson ignored him. Uh, but that's an interesting part of the history that has to be taken into consideration to understand what the heck is happening throughout Haitian history and in the last 30 or 40 years. How has the Haitian elite used race and color to uh, maintain control? You have two extreme sides, if you wish. One is the kind of what we call noirist uh, interpretation, which would be kind of a black power interpretation. And that is that the light skin, what we call in Haiti mulatos, are exploitative and they are responsible for all the ills of Haiti and they have repressed the black majority and therefore you need a government of black people to redress the situation. And it's also an appeal to what we call in Haiti Guinea, which is essentially Africa, that we are descendants of Africans and that's those descendants are the real Haitians. The others are not quite Haitians. Uh, and that is... It's a very simplified way of putting it. Then you have the light skin who have the idea that, as they used to put it, le pouvoir au plus capable, which is a veiled way of saying that power should go to the most competent. And obviously, uh, mulatos are the most competent. So you have those two ideological forces, if you wish, uh, confronting each other. Now, the problem is that the families at the top the color can change very quickly because of the accidents of biology. And that makes no real sense, but a population can in fact be mobilized uh, with that uh, uh, appeal to color. In fact, Duvalier himself, when he came to power, he was articulating a noirist ideology and it had resonance in the population because there is the simple reality that if you are light-skinned in Haiti, you are almost inevitably at the top of the social hierarchy. You have, uh, you are well off, you live in the nice areas of Port-au-Prince and Pétionville. So there is a, re a real factual uh, basis for that. But that doesn't mean that you don't have similar people with dark skin, but it is ideology that is used and uh, some people have been using it uh, to good effect to get power and if you look at the political class if you wish virtually all people in that class are dark-skinned Haitians the last more or less light-skinned guy we had was Martelly and Martelly is kind of a unique phenomenon because he had some bizarre appeal thanks to his uh, kind of bombastic popular music that uh, the vast majority of Haitians uh, liked and listened to and danced with. He had identified himself with that kind of populist, popular sector. But that didn't mean that he had any interest in changing anything for the vast majority of the population. Far from it. I'm speaking with the political scientist Robert Fadden. So the U.S. occupied Haiti, what, 1915 to 1934. What kind of um, heritage did that occupation leave behind? Well, a few uh, roads were built, a few clinics were built, but the critical element left by the American occupation is the army and the centralization of power in Port-au-Prince. Prior to the arrival of the Americans, the uh, provincial areas had significant weight in what was happening in Port-au-Prince. When the Americans departed in 1934, the centralization of power uh, was really significant and Port-au-Prince became, as we, we say in Haiti, la république de Port-au-Prince. And this is where real political power is concentrated in. And the army, which was created by the U.S., centralized that authority the bureaucratic reach of the state also was more significant. It penetrated the rural areas. But the army is the main legacy. 
the kind of modern army that we had, which was to some extent a link to U.S. imperial power. Uh, and the army has played a significant role in Haitian history since then. Now, Duvalier, when he came to power after so many different coups, decided that the only way he could really keep his hold on the state was to create a militia that would counterbalance the army. So this is why he created the famous Tonton Macoute. And that gave him some appeal to the population because he, he would give guns and a certain degree of authority to peasants, to lower class people. They had a gun and they could run the show. And that counterbalanced uh, the army. Now, when he died in 1971, the U.S. came uh, to uh, the rescue of Jean-Claude Duvalier, and they again uh, modernized the coercive apparatus. And the army regained uh, most of its power, and the Tontomacut started to recede from the background. And one of the main uh, military call that was created was the so-called Leopard, and they were an anti-guerrilla force that was very much connected to Jean-Claude Duvalier. Many of the people in that uh, group of Leopard were actually uh, friends of Jean-Claude Duvalier, so he had uh, that kind of uh, security. So he replaced, if you wish, to some extent, the, the Makut with the Leopard as his own uh, loyal force. They were well-equipped, well-trained, and they became a powerful element within the army itself. When Jean-Claude left, the army took over, and they had a series of coups that led eventually to the overthrow of Aristide in 91. But when Aristide comes back in 94, one of the first things he does is to abolish the army and to literally emasculate the army. The uh, barracks of the army are painted in pink, and uh, the, those uh, quarters become the quarters of what we call in Haiti la condition féminine. In other words, it was the equivalent of uh, an organization defending the interests of women. And in a macho culture like Haiti, that was the ultimate insult to uh, the military. Uh, more recently, they recreated the army, but it is not what it used to be. It's a very weak force, not very well trained, not very well equipped. So the police is now the key force, if you wish, in Haiti that had been trained by the United Nations peacekeepers in, uh, since you know, the mid-1990s. Finally, what prospects are there for Haiti? You have uh, very weak institutions, a very weak ruling class, very poor and um, alienated population. It would seem that the prospects for Haiti are quite bleak. Is that uh, too dark a view? Well, <laughs> I'm quite pessimistic about the future. Uh, what I hope uh, personally is that there could be a solution in Haiti itself whereby all the political actors and including more progressive forces would be included in that solution. And do those progressive forces exist? They are. You have, uh, I mean, the protest against Jovenel Moïse represented, if you wish, kind of a progressive force that wanted to clean up the political system to establish some semblance of a legitimate uh, government. Uh, free from the corruption, free from the domination of the traditional uh, economic elites, etc. Now, as I've said, I don't think they have the power to do so. But there's a possibility that the crisis is so acute now, cooler heads might prevail and that you could have some sort of government of national unity that would uh, generate a process that would not be as uh, negative as uh, we've had in the past. On the other hand, the history of the country and the recent history does not bode well for such an outcome. There is a possibility. There are people talking 
uh, about uh, government of national unity. And I don't know if that is feasible, given the balance of power in Haiti itself, and clearly the influence of uh, foreign powers. Uh, I don't know what the United States, the French, and the rest of, of the core group really wants in Haiti. Uh, they've been, uh, to a large degree, connected to all of those traditional politicians. They've tended to ignore those progressive forces, not surprisingly. So I, I am, you know, on the one hand, hoping that the crisis might generate a better outcome. But past history indicates that that is highly unlikely and that we are going to get the same type of uh, governments that we got as a result of previous crises. I mean, after all, in 2010, we had a massive earthquake that could have generated a, a really different outcome than the one we got. But Haitians failed to do that. And to some extent, it was also uh, a failure that reflected the significant uh, foreign interference in the affairs of Haiti and how Haitians wanted to resolve their own problems. Now, and Biden has refused to send troops so far. Do you see him changing? Or what? what's the role of the U.S. been and likely to be? The, the U.S. role is absolutely significant. Now, I don't think that you're going to get American troops in Haiti, except if you have a complete descent into hell that happens suddenly. I mean, gangs, there's violence. Uh, my feeling is that they want to see if they can establish some sort of government that will lead to elections. And if that fails, then I think the U.S. will use the U.N., the Organization of American States and the Caribbean nations to form a peacekeeping force and they'll come to Haiti. But at, at the moment, I think they want some sort of government that will organize elections. Now, I think elections in the current climate, uh, you know, this is madness because no one is going to be legitimate coming out of elections in a situation where you don't have security, where the, the apparatus to conduct a semblance of fair and free elections doesn't exist, where we don't even have an electoral council. There's a void. So the constitution doesn't work anymore. There is no constitution, in fact, now, because it has been violated to such an extent that it doesn't provide any type of guideline as to what should happen. But elections, as they want to have them in September, to me, would only exacerbate the current crisis. You need a period where you can appease the situation, as it were, and you can deal with the, the gangs in one way or another. You can't have elections when a significant chunk of the population is under gang control and people are afraid of uh, circulating freely in Pau-Presse. And then you have the other kind of uh, serious problem that might unleash another crisis, and that's COVID. We've been lucky so far in Haiti that COVID hasn't had the devastating impact that we might have feared, but there is a new variant, as you know, and that new variant may be more of a killing force than it has been so far. We've received some 500,000 uh, vaccines but I don't know how they are going to dis be distributed. And that's not much in the population uh, of 12 million inhabitants. So the problems are really acute. Uh, the exit from that predicament is uh, very uncertain. I hope for a Haitian solution to Haitian problems, but I fear that this is not going to happen, that the traditional elites and political class in Haiti and the international community is going to try to find a solution that is very similar to past solutions. So therefore, we wouldn't have made, we wouldn't have made any significant progress. We would have another crisis in the medium term. So the future to me looks bleak, but I still have some glimmer of hope that uh, there might be a chance for an alternative. I was Robert Fatton, a professor of politics at the University of Virginia and author most recently of The Guise of Exceptionalism, Unmasking the National Narratives of Haiti and the United States, published a few months ago by Rutgers University Press. 
To conclude, here are a few words about the role of Bill and Hillary Clinton in shaping Haiti over the last decade or so, drawn from my book, My Turn, Hillary Clinton Targets the Presidency. On becoming Secretary of State in 2009, Hillary resolved to make Haiti a foreign policy priority. It was to be a prime example of a new development strategy that would put business at its center. Aid would be replaced by investment, the growth of which would in turn benefit the United States. Promoting foreign investment requires keeping wages low, which is precisely what Hillary's State Department successfully helped engineer. When the Haitian Parliament unanimously passed increase the minimum wage to $5 a day, an amount that Hillary earned in about seven one-hundredths of a second at her standard speaking fee, U.S. business interests in the island mobilized and, with the help of her State Department, blocked the rise. The State Department also collaborated in 2009 with other Western Hemisphere ambassadors to push ahead with corrupt elections from which the country's largest party, Aristide Lavalas, was excluded. The elections were delayed by the January 2010 earthquake. When they were eventually held, they were a disgrace with rampant fraud and a 23% turnout. Sweet Mickey was proclaimed the winner by the Organization of American States, with Hillary Clinton presiding. The cynicism around the election was perfectly captured in an email from Hillary's longtime aide, Cheryl Mills, who wrote this to the Port-au-Prince embassy staff in March 2011, the night of the runoff that delivered Martley his victory. Nice job. Nice job, all. You do great elections and make us all look good. I'm so very grateful for all you have done. Dinner on me next trip. And we can discuss how the counting is going. Just kidding. Kinda. Smiley face. The Clintons played commanding roles in reconstruction from the earthquake, with the State Department managing much of the official role and the Clinton Foundation heavily involved on the philanthropic side. At a moment when Haitians badly need housing and infrastructure, the Clintons focused on developing an industrial park that was supposed to provide thousands of jobs, but ended up creating very few. What housing was built was deeply substandard and in some cases toxic. But the Clinton Foundation did a lot to build two luxury hotels in Port-au-Prince. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, some of Sweet Mickey's President, a 1995 song that called for a president who played compa. The song joked with the idea of his becoming president, but Martley fell in love with his joke and got his wish 16 years later. His reign was a disaster, as was his legacy. Till next week, bye.